What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family... Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It was the filibuster to end all filibusters in the U.S. Senate. In February 1964, just three months after President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed in Dallas, Texas, the House of Representatives passed a landmark civil rights bill. Among other things, the bill banned discrimination in public facilities on the basis of race and other traits. Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, spearheaded the historic legislation. Its purpose is not to punish. Its purpose is not to divide, but to end divisions. Divisions which have lasted all too long. Many in America were not happy to see such divisions end. The House passed the bill. Then several Southern senators began a record-setting attempt to frustrate its passage. They succeeded delaying a vote for almost three months. Their epic filibuster came to an end just before 10 a.m. on the morning of June 10, 1964. An exhausted Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia, a former KKK member, finished nearly 14 hours of speaking on the Senate floor. His lengthy address was in vain. Nine days later, the Senate approved the act, and President Johnson signed the bill in a nationally televised ceremony. Tonight, I urge every public official, every religious leader, every business and professional man, every working man, every housewife, I urge every American to join in this effort to bring justice and hope to all our people. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was truly a landmark moment for African Americans, but it was also a game-changing moment for women, including every housewife in America, as the president referred to them. Nestled into Title VII of the act was a single word, sex, and that word kick-started a revolution that is still unfolding today, from courtrooms to World Cup soccer fields. Let us play. 
From Aussie, this is The Thread. I'm Sean Braswell. This season on The Thread, we've celebrated the 20th anniversary of the 99ers and their unforgettable women's soccer World Cup victory with a journey back through time to see everything that led up to that moment at the Rose Bowl in 1999. In this final episode, we conclude the journey that began with Brandy Chastain's winning penalty kick by revisiting a historic anti-discrimination law, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And we'll find out how that legislation still governs the fate of the current U.S. women's national team, even after their triumphant victory at this year's World Cup in France. Before the U.S. Senate considered it, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 underwent a contentious debate in the House of Representatives. Like their Senate colleagues, the Southern congressmen in the House, opposed to the law, tried everything in their power to sabotage it. Historian Rosalind Rosenberg. It looked as though the act would pass, at which point a Southern congressman by the name of Howard Smith from Virginia rose to ask for an amendment to Title VII, And that amendment was the word sex, that employers should be barred from discriminating not only on the basis of race and national origin and religion, but also on the basis of sex. This was an addition that looked as though it might well scuttle the Civil Rights Act, which Howard Smith hoped would be the case. Smith figured that many Northern congressmen and labor leaders might change their minds on the bill if they thought it meant women had to be hired on an equal footing with men. He proposed the change almost jokingly. He said he was going to do it to help, quote, the minority sex. Karen Blumenthal is the author of Let Me Play, the story of Title IX. Now, some of the men in Congress thought that was hilarious um, because women, of course, were housewives and they were mothers. They were not people who went into the workplace. But there was at least one woman in Congress listening to Smith who did not think it was funny at all. So Martha Griffiths is one of the unsung heroes of the women's movement. She was the granddaughter of a suffragette. She had grown up as a very good student, a debater in high school. She wanted to go to college, but the family funds were tight. And her father said, no, we're going to have to spend money sending your brother to college. Martha's mother would not deny her daughter that chance. She took in boarders and worked spare jobs so Martha could go to college and then law school. So she went to the University of Michigan Law School, was very successful there, and decided later to run for Congress. She was one of the first women elected to Congress in the 1950s who was not following a husband. Griffith served 10 terms in Congress and was the first woman ever to serve on the powerful House Ways and Means Committee. This interview clip from 1974 will give you a sense of what Martha Griffiths was like. At the time, it looked like the Equal Rights Amendment enshrining gender equality in the U.S. Constitution might actually get ratified. Until the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, was there no protection for women under the law in our Constitution? Not really. They never applied the 14th Amendment to women. They didn't apply the 15th. When the 15th Amendment had been written, which said every citizen could vote, in the name of heavens, why couldn't women vote? Why did you have to have the 19th Amendment? Well, of course, the answer was they didn't consider women people. Griffiths was a force in Congress. She was not afraid to speak her mind. Once an airline chief executive involved in an employment dispute told Griffiths that his company wanted stewardesses that were, quote, young, attractive, and single. Griffiths wrote him back a stinging letter that asked, what are you running, an airline or a whorehouse? Martha Griffiths also did not have the patience to stand by while Howard Smith joked about employment discrimination on the floor of Congress. Author Karen Blumenthal. 
When the laughter stops, uh, Martha Griffith stands up and says, you know, I guess if there's any question that women are uh, second class, uh, you know, your response would prove that. The men quieted down. So she proposes that women should indeed be included in the Civil Rights Act, that this is not a joke, that women need to work just like men do, and that they shouldn't be discriminated against. Griffiths appealed to the white men in the chamber by pointing out that without the word sex, the bill would favor black women over white women. She argued, quote, a vote against this bill today by a white man is a vote against his wife or his widow or his daughter or his sister. So when the time came, Congress, to the surprise of many, actually approved adding sex to the Civil Rights Act that affected employment. And when this happened, somebody in the visitor's gallery yelled, we made it, we're human. A couple of days later, the House passed the entire civil rights bill, sex included. We've now completed this season's journey back through history, from the fight over a single word in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to the penalty kick heard around the world in 1999. Let's recap. Thanks to Congresswoman Martha Griffiths, the word sex appears in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Then, because of a trailblazing legal scholar named Polly Murray, sex not only stays in that law, but a new legal foundation is laid for sex discrimination that culminates with the passage of Title IX, another landmark law that bans sex discrimination in education. But Title IX would never have been passed without the efforts of women like Bunny Sandler and Edith Green, and it never would have been enforced without the women of the 1976 Yale crew team. Thanks to these figures, Title IX would usher in a new era of women's sports in America. Among those early beneficiaries of Title IX were the members of the first U.S. women's national soccer team in the mid-1980s. These women had hand-me-down uniforms and virtually no compensation but they had a love of the game that transcended their circumstances and that paved the way for the 99ers, whose triumph on that summer day in Pasadena put an exclamation point on almost four decades of history. But it's a journey that is not over. Women's sports in America may be successful, but they are far from equal. You ever get that feeling like the concrete jungles closing in? You crave wide open spaces, the chance to chase your own dinner, or just breathe clean air. Well, listen up. There's a whole world out there waiting, and finding your piece of it just got easier. Head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, you name it. Search by acreage, price, location. They've got it all. No matter what kind of wild dream you're chasing, land.com can help you find the ground to make it a reality. So quit dreaming. Head over to land.com, find your open space, and get out there. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. 
Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Title IX to me is opportunity. Tracy Noonan was a goaltender for the 99ers. It was opportunity for girls that we hadn't had before. When I look at when my mom grew up, she would have loved to have played soccer. She, you know, I know that the high school that she went to, they weren't allowed to. They didn't have female sports. Noonan was born in 1973 and into a generation of women who had significantly more opportunities to compete and to play. Someone once called Title IX the biggest thing to happen to sports since the invention of the whistle. Nina Chaudhry is general counsel at the National Women's Law Center, a nonprofit founded in the same year as Title IX. Title IX has been a game changer and it has allowed women to really emerge from their second class status, which is where they were relegated. The participation numbers for women in sports before and after Title IX are stunning. Karen Blumenthal. Before Title IX is passed, There's only 700 girls in the entire United States playing soccer. In five years, there's 11,000 girls playing. And it didn't stop there. Before Title IX, one in 27 girls played sports in America. Today, that number is closer to two in five. The number of young women playing high school sports is 10 times as high as it was in the 1970s. And these numbers continue to grow and grow. And the supporters are, of course, parents, and not just moms, but dads who love to play sports and wanted the same thing for their daughters. Emily Pickering, one of the members of the first U.S. women's national team in 1985, is one of those parents. You know, and I tried to teach that to my daughter and and instill in her the fact that, you know, we've come a long way and, and Title IX really changed the landscape of everything for women. And it's a landscape that is here to stay. Marilee Dean Baker, Princeton's first female athletic director, summed it up. I was called a tomboy. My daughters are called athletes. And during the 1990s, many Americans became aware of just what amazing female athletes they had. That's next on The Thread. At the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta, U.S. women won 39 gold medals, including team victories in softball, basketball, and soccer. Americans started to pay attention. Karen Blumenthal. And so the women all started winning gold. And then a couple of years later, this soccer team comes around. And these women are fierce. They're good. They're muscular. They're talented. And they're winning. This was the payoff for giving women the simple opportunity to play. And then, of course, comes that fateful summer day in Pasadena in 1999. And it continues from the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. The United States has won the Women's World Cup. Historian Susan Ware. 90,000 people coming to watch a women's sporting event. This is just enough to make any older woman's heart flutter. You know, the thought that that many people cared so much about women's sports. And 
1999 is barely 25 years after the passage of Title IX, where women's sports were basically at zero. But the 99ers did not just inspire a new audience for women's sports. Tracy Noonan again. So the legacy to me is, you know, really about inspiring that next generation, that this is what women's soccer can look like. You know, it was a, a big moment, I think, for not only the young girls in this country, but also for boys and for men to understand that this is a marketable sport and it's just not something to keep the girls busy with. That impact upon men and boys has been particularly special. Tim Nash is the author of It's Not the Glory and has covered the women's national team for decades. One of the cool things about 99 is it actually gave fathers an opportunity to go to a sporting event with their daughters. And it was their daughters picking the event. And the level of acceptance from boys about girl soccer players just went through the roof. Kristen Press was 11 years old in the summer of 1999. I think for everyone who saw the game, it was the first time that you had seen women in such a magnitude. Now she is a striker for the current national team. It was like, wow, this is what we could do. This is what we're chasing after. That's so much bigger than we imagined. National team defender Crystal Dunn turned seven during the 1999 World Cup. It was hard for women to even be taken seriously already at that time. And I think them winning it and the success they've had really allowed the world to see we can play the sport, you know. It's not just a man's game. It's, it's everyone's game. It is now everyone's game. And for the 1999 team assistant coach Lauren Gregg, that is one of the beautiful things about what the 99ers accomplished. They had created a generation that wouldn't know any differently. And that's, I think, one of the things I'm most proud about. Like, I have a 17 and a 12-year-old daughter. They don't know any different. But that doesn't mean that women today are treated equally. If I just look back over my lifetime... Historian Susan Ware again. ...and think about the amazing changes that have happened for women just in the past 40, going on 50 years, it is a truly phenomenal amount of social change, you know, for women more broadly and also in women's sports. And yet, if you go, oh, if you go to any high school and you start asking the girls about how are they treated, how are their teams treated? Well, when the boys' team comes in third, they get announced on the PA and there's a it's a big deal. But when our volleyball team, you know, wins state, nobody really pays attention. They're just all these small things that remind us that women's sports are still struggling for equality. Karen Blumenthal. It's not as bad as in the 70s, where literally women's teams had to go home, launder their own uniforms, and hand them off to another team for their next game. But it's still not equitable. Women easily make up the majority of students on American college campuses today. Yet they are still often underrepresented on sports teams. Their teams still receive lower budgets and have worse facilities than their male counterparts. Nina Chaudhry again, the general counsel at the National Women's Law Center. Many schools across the country are out of compliance. I sometimes say that I could throw a dart at a map and wherever it landed, that school would be out of compliance. There is no shortage of examples. 
often we see disparities between boys' baseball fields and girls' softball fields. That's a big one because I think it's very visible when boys have press boxes and dugouts and lighting and girls have none of the above. And Nina Chaudhry says not all women are treated equally either. While we've certainly come a long way since Title IX, for women and girls of color in particular and other groups of women who are marginalized, I think there's still even more work to do. And even at the pinnacle of women's sports, the national soccer team, things are not much better. The United States has dominated women's soccer for almost three decades, thanks to Title IX, the 99ers, and the women of the early U.S. national teams. The national team has won four World Cups and four Olympic gold medals. It is successful by almost any measure you can imagine. But here in 2019, the U.S. women are not treated the same as their male peers. Not even close. Title IX has created opportunities for millions of female athletes and contributed to the phenomenal success of the women's national team in soccer. Unfortunately, what hasn't changed is the great wage disparities and discrimination based on gender that plague our society, including in sports. And uh, we are conducting a legal fight to try to remedy that for these great women champions. Jeffrey Kessler is an attorney at the Winston Strawn Law Firm who is representing the women's national team in their current legal fight for equal pay. This morning, the U.S. women's soccer team is making moves off the field with a gender discrimination lawsuit against their employer, the U.S. Soccer Federation. The goal? Changing working conditions and what players get paid. Carly Lloyd, Alex Morgan, and Megan Rapino are the team's star athletes and among the 28 players named in the class action lawsuit. They actually filed it on International Women's Day in March, alleging institutionalized gender discrimination. Caitlin Murray is a journalist and author of The National Team, the inside story of the women who change soccer. For a lot of the American public, something like this takes them by surprise because we see these players with these big endorsement deals and they're stars and they're popular and you just kind of assume that things have always been pretty good for them. But in actuality, this team has been waging similar battles the entire time it has existed. She's right. The current national team comes from a long line of fighters. It's in their DNA. The 99ers were no strangers to confrontation. Just before the 1996 Olympics, the team learned that the U.S. Soccer Federation was still unwilling to pay them anything remotely close to what the men's team received. The men were to be given bonuses if they received gold, silver, or bronze medals at the Olympics. The women would only get theirs if they won gold. They decided they were going to boycott playing for the national team unless U.S. soccer offered the same bonuses that they were offering to the men's team. So nine of the team's veterans, including Mia Hamm and Michelle Akers, refused to attend training camp. 99er Tracy Noonan. They held out. They risked not going to the very first Olympics. Um, but that was kind of a starting point of, all right, we have some leverage here and we need to start to use it. Months later, the players and U.S. soccer reached a compromise. In the end, U.S. soccer agreed to give the women a bonus if they won gold or silver. So it was still not equal to the men's bonus. The 99ers still had to fight for their rights, even after they won the World Cup in Pasadena. The players organized their own nationwide victory tour following the World Cup because U.S. soccer had nothing planned. 
Then U.S. Soccer threatened to sue the team to stop the tour. That's when Mia Hamm, the team's best-known player, dropped a bombshell in defense of her teammates. She responded, quote, If you sue us, I'm prepared to never play for U.S. soccer again. The U.S. Soccer Federation caved. Two decades later, the unfair treatment persists. For the past three years, U.S. women's soccer games have generated more revenue than U.S. men's games. But the women still do not enjoy a level playing field. Team lawyer Jeffrey Kessler again. They are the more prominent television and media attraction and sponsorship attraction right now. Yet, by our calculations, even putting aside the World Cup, for all their other matches, they are making no better than 70% in terms of what the men can make. There is one important difference between the men's and women's teams, according to Kessler, and it's not gender. The important difference between those teams is that the women are consistently the number one ranked team in the world and the repeated world champion, and the men have not been as successful. In May 2019, U.S. soccer filed its response to the team's complaint. It did not dispute that the men's and women's players are not paid equally, but it claims that those inequities are a result of, quote, different pay structures for performing different work. U.S. soccer claims that's because the two teams negotiated separate collective bargaining agreements, essentially that the women are comparing apples to oranges. And if the women got apples, it's because they negotiated for them. That is true, but irrelevant. Every type of wage discrimination is agreed to by the employee. (laughs) That's how you work. (laughs) So just like you could not agree to, in a collective bargaining agreement, receive less than the minimum wage, you can't use a collective bargaining agreement as a defense to say it's okay, we could justify uh, a gender-based wage discrimination because you agreed to it. Perhaps the biggest grievance is about bonuses for World Cup performance. Each member of the women's team, for example, earned $90,000 for reaching the quarterfinals of the World Cup this year. The men's players would receive six times that if they performed as well. The U.S. Soccer Federation did not respond to our request to comment. One thing is certain, the current national team's drive to fight for equality is as strong as their drive to win the World Cup. We caught up with a few of the current players in New York City just before they left to compete in the World Cup. We asked them about the challenge of trying to win on the field and in the courtroom at the same time. It's a little bit different. You know, on the field, we're we're focused, we're prepared to win. This is midfielder Carly Lloyd, one of the team's captains. Off the field, you know, it's it's a there's a, a lot more that we, I think, as women have to do. We kind of have to be a lot more active than some of the male figures on social media and, you know, doing all interviews and, you know, fighting for equality and and the equal pay and and all of these things. The upside of the fight is huge, though. Midfielder Morgan Bryan. I do think, you know, we're pioneering women's sports and, and pushing for more. And so I think that's something that we've always had in our DNA and want to be a part of us is that we not only are great on the field and and push along the women's game, but we're also pushing along women. And the team now has a bigger platform than ever. Striker Alex Morgan. I think this team has the capability to really create shockwaves throughout the world. And I think we have the platform to be able to do so. And now it's just following through and making sure that we're playing at our best every single day because this is going to be the most challenging World Cup that we've ever played in. Many worried before the World Cup that the lawsuit would be a distraction and hinder the team's performance. 
the team's attorney, James Kessler. Well, it's not a distraction to me. I don't have to trade the play in the World Cup. So we have a very good division of labor. Uh, we'll take care of the legal side. They can take care of the playing side. And hopefully, we'll achieve victories on both sides. The U.S. women did take care of the playing side this summer and did what they do best, win World Cups. That's it. U.S. wins their fourth World Cup. Uh, the World Cup party can officially start now. U.S. defeats Netherlands by the score of 2 nothing. And now it's time to see if they can win on the legal side. And if the team does manage, as Kessler puts it, to achieve victory on both sides? I think it would be huge. It would send a message to girls and women everywhere, empower them to speak up uh, and ask for what they're entitled to. Nina Chaudhry of the Women's National Law Center again. For them to stand up and say that they should get better and that they're demanding better, I think is really powerful and will inspire others to do that as well. But when it comes to the legal side of things, says Kessler, there's something even more important than inspiration, precedent. This is an incredibly important issue, not just for the women's national team, not just for women in sports, but for women. This is really the first case I'm aware of uh, on gender-based discrimination in professional sports. We're going to be that predecessor case, I hope, for others. But it is merely the latest battle in a long-running struggle for equality. What would Bunny Sandler, the godmother of Title IX we covered in Episode 4, think about the national team's current legal battle? Her daughter, Deborah Sandler. She would be absolutely insistent that the women have the same status, the same pay, the same awards, the same facilities, the same opportunities that the men have. That would be what she would really want. And that's what she was fighting for all along. It's what the 99ers were fighting for, too. And it's a fight that still inspires. Current national team captain Alex Morgan again. This is all of us, you know, looking at these 99ers and the fact that they paved the way so much. And, you know, we are so grateful for what they did in the sport for us, and now it's up to us to continue to pave that way. I love America. Whatever she hands me, I'm handing her back with the, I hope, of championship quality. This is Polly Murray again, the civil rights pioneer from episode five, whose legal scholarship was behind everything from Brown versus Board of Education to Title IX. And so, so many of my heroes have been the champions, the Jackie Robinsons, the people who climbed over and said, I'll show you. I'll show you. If only Polly Murray could have seen the 99ers and the current national team show the world what a champion looks like. If only she could have seen them fighting for victory both on and off the field. That's the only reason why the team is where it is today, because they have been waging these sort of fights and battles all along. Journalist Caitlin Murray again. They have had setbacks over and over again on the field. And then, you know, off the field, they've had legal battles and boycotts and other problems. But the team always recovers from these things. They always find a way to progress forward and a way to inspire a new generation. During the 1999 final, I was in my living room and I was on the floor with my, my hands, you know, like my head perched in my hands, just watching with my dad. Becky Sauerbrunn is a leading defender on the current team and a lead plaintiff in the team's lawsuit. She's telling her own version of a story that thousands of Americans can tell. 
And what I felt when they won basically was the reason that I wanted to be a soccer player. I wanted to experience what those women were experiencing on the field because they just looked so happy. And I wanted to know what that felt like. But that was then, and this is now, as they say. Forget about the 99ers for a moment, and where you might have been when Brandy Chastain's penalty kick hit the goal net. That's probably not the question your friends will ask you in 20 years. That's not what your daughters and sons will remember. No, the question will be, where were you that glorious summer of 2019 when the U.S. women's national soccer team dazzled millions with their play, when they attracted a whole new generation of soccer fans? when they continued the fight of those like Bunny Sandler and Polly Murray, when they stood up for women everywhere and changed the course of history forever. Where were you then? The Thread is written and hosted by me, Sean Braswell. It was produced by Robert Kulos and Shannon Williamson. Evan Roberts edited our show, and it was mixed and mastered by Matt Tamarillo. Special thanks to Faye Schlesinger, Tracy Moran, and Carly Stern. And a big thanks as well to the folks at Fox Sports for allowing us to use some of their World Cup interview footage. This season features the song Let Us Play, written and performed by Teacup Gin. You can hear more of their songs at teacupgin.com. To learn more about The Thread, visit aussie.com slash the thread, all one word. And make sure to subscribe to The Thread on Apple Podcasts, follow us on iHeartRadio, or listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell. From Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You ever get that feeling like the concrete jungles closing in? You crave wide open spaces, the chance to chase your own dinner, or just breathe clean air. Well, listen up. There's a whole world out there waiting, and finding your piece of it just got easier. Head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, you name it. Search by acreage, price, location. They've got it all. No matter what kind of wild dream you're chasing, land.com can help you find the ground to make it a reality. So quit dreaming. Head over to land.com, find your open space, and get out there. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. 
Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.